In today's age, it can be hard to find the time to sit down and learn more. I was thinking just the other day that I became a writer basically to support my reading habit. I have a thousand books on my bookshelf. I think that's literal. And I've never gotten to as many as I want to get to, which is one reason that I use Blinkist. Blinkist is a condensing app. It, It sort of gets at the the meat of a book. It puts it all into a 15-minute segment that you can read or listen to. All the key takeaways, all the big points, the stuff that you probably would remember if you read the whole thing, uh, but it's now sort of put together for you. It's the only app that does this. It's made for busy people like you and like me who want to get the main points of the book quickly without reading the whole thing. You may get back to it sometime, but this way you get you know, the gist of it. And with that audio feature, you can read many books a day. Eight million people are using Blinkist right now and has a massive and growing library from self-help business, health to history. I like Blinkist, like I said, because it sort of lets me get to books that I've been meaning to get to, which in some ways like frees me up to get back to them later, I think. Uh, And it has books that are self-help books, uh, books about productivity and whatnot, but also it has like Malala's autobiography and Locking Up Our Own by James Foreman, which is somebody who I've wanted to have on the show for a long time. And you, before I am on the show, you could read his book on Blinkist. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash with friends to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash with friends to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist.com slash with friends. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, the show where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. And just real talk for a second, uh, this show has uh, been maybe a little too easy lately. Um, Although I've had some intense moments in talking to guests, I haven't felt that uncomfortable, really. This show makes up for it. Uh, This show probably needs a few different trigger warnings. First of all, there is a a brief kind of aside about sexual violence in my first interview with Dr. Tressie McMillan-Cottom. And then there's the second uh, interview of this episode, which is with Erica Christensen, who is a patient advocate for later abortion access and the co-founder of rhavote.org. And... Exactly as her bio puts it, we talk about abortions a lot. The word abortion is said over and over and over. Abortion. 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 And I'm saying it like that right now because I talked to her for half an hour and I still feel weird. And that's kind of what we talk about. But to warm you up for that discomfort... I do first talk to Tressie McMillan-Cottom, who is an assistant professor of sociology at Virginia Commonwealth University. Her work has been featured by The Washington Post, NPR's Fresh Air, The Daily Show, and The New York Times. She's the author of two books. The first is Lower Ed, The Troubling Rise of For-Profit Colleges in the New Economy. And the second is out right now. It is called Thick and Other Essays. Uh, I like this show to be somewhat timeless and not hooked to the news cycle, but having a woman of color uh, sociologist from Virginia on the show this week means 
We do spend quite a bit of time talking about the situation in Virginia uh, with the governor there and what I called an epidemic of blackface, but she very correctly um, sort of reframed as uh, an epidemic of, of taking blackface seriously. So coming right up, Tressie McMillan Cotton. Tracy McMillan Cottom, welcome to my show. Thank you, Anna. Pleasure to be here. I was looking forward to having you on months ago. Today, I got really excited about it because I was flipping through your book and I saw um, a section that I had not just underlined and highlighted, but also put a star next to because I think it actually serves as something of a, it could be the motto or like the uh, um, epilogue for the show. Mm Mm-hmm. I hate small talk. Ah. It is small. <laughs> small is for teacups and occasionally for tiny houses. Too much small talk is how a country is given to sociopaths who thrive on shallow chatter to distract their emotional sleight of hand. Talk should be meaningful or kept to a minimum. That's it. I say as we sit down for a podcast. <laughs> Oh, we're going to keep it meaningful. That's that's, that's right. my goal. Like that's that's why I read it. It's like we're not going to do small talk. We're, we're done. We're done I know, with that. Said, I know. I've got, you know, strangely enough, people responded to that uh, oddly. I get the more than occasional uh, note from someone who wants to defend small talk. And I think, <laughs> yeah, I'm not leaving my purse around you, buddy. I also hate small talk. That's actually, like, I sometimes make small talk about how much I hate small talk. Oh, yeah. That's like the only way That's that I can deal with it. the only acceptable small talk. That's right, about That's how right. horrible like, this all is. What we're doing right now is actually the only acceptable form of small talk. That is correct. <laughs> so now that we've dispatched with that, let's dive into the meaningful stuff, which unfortunately, hopefully we'll be able to keep this um, at a high enough level that the podcast is forever relevant. But there's some stuff that's happened in Virginia, where where you reside, Mm -hmm. that seems to be relevant both to the discussion of your book and to uh, this show. Mm. And in case you happen to be living somewhere without internet access or uh, you have not um, looked at the news, there is a blackface ec- epidemic happening um, among Virginia politicians, specifically uh, the governor and the attorney general. Is that right? Correct. And then pff, making things even more problematic, there's an accusation of sexual assault against the lieutenant governor mm-hmm. who happens to be black. Right. Uh, the takes, they have been flying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> The hottest takes. Oh, this is a hot take Super Bowl we're in. Oh, my God. It's so bad. I've just been huddling down myself. Oh, yeah. You know, doing kind of a, a, like, for the nuclear uh, blast. Yes. Yeah. I think it's the smartest approach. Yeah. And part of that, I'll actually, speaking of just being honest and skipping small talk, I actually was pretty intentional about that, Mm -hmm. about avoiding the takes, because I was like, you know what? Not my lane. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know Virginia politics. (laughs) I don't know Virginia politics, number one. Mm -hmm. And you know what? I'm not one of the people that's been hurt by this. Mm -hmm. So I made a a point to actually listen to people such as yourself. In fact, you in particular. I I don't know where you want to start with this. Part of me wants to start on the upper level of the Mm -hmm. take war. Mm -hmm. Or do you want to address Northam in particular? Uh, I mean... 
frankly, I don't know what there is to say about North. <laughs> I mean, I mean, that's the weird thing about takes, right? They are most yeah. prolific when there uh, is the minimal amount of debate about the issue. Right. Right. Takes takes tend to proliferate when the, most of this stuff uh, goes without saying. That's the beautiful thing about takes. Um, so, I mean, what is there to say? I mean, he he excused one charge of blackface by admitting to another yet unknown incident of blackface, which I thought was just remarkable level of inception. Uh, I thought, well, you can't write that better than that. Um I mean, yeah, there's nothing else to say except what we are living with. I would, you know, probably diverge a little bit to say, I don't know that we have a blackface uh, epidemic. What we have is an epidemic of times having changed where blackface now matters. Um, And people are able to say that it matters and pushes back. These are career politicians for the most part, Northam, not necessarily. Um, But we're talking about career politicians. So. And we're talking about years worth of opposition research on people. I find it very hard to believe that, you know, these things had not been known. What is different is that we now knew or someone now knew or suspected that the ground had shifted beneath us. And now an image of yourself in blackface might matter in a particular way. Um so that's what I think we're dealing with, because what we're really seeing is how, especially with uh, the attorney general's announcement today that, you know, he wanted to get out ahead of the charges and just go ahead and admit that he also uh, had gone and blackface to parties while in college. And I think what we see is just how, you know, pedestrian it all is for um, a segment of white culture. And I think especially in the South, the sort of Southern elite culture, which is where both of these men come from, they're talking about doing this in college, right? This isn't drunk parties during middle school of a couple of, you know, hard knock down on their luck, um, uh, lower class white kids. These are elite white students in elite universities where doing blackface is part of how they do their cultural bonding. Um, and so, you know, that it's actually about how pedestrian and typical and common that has been for almost all of our history, including our recent history, um, you know. I mean, what is there to say about that except, yeah, black people know. <laughs> yeah, black people know. Yeah. I think that might be one of the things we can learn from this. I think you're right. Like, there is nothing to say f- about the instances of blackface beyond, yeah, they should resign. Mm-hmm. It's not acceptable. Yeah. And I, I'm actually one of the people that called for Al Franken to resign. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not made me especially popular. I bet. Among certain a certain certain segments of the mm-hmm. left, but my argument there, and again, I kind of want to stand my lane, but let me know if this mm-hmm. sounds right in this in this particular instance, mm-hmm. was that being a senator, being in elected office, is an honor and a privilege, not a right. Mm-hmm. And I don't think you necessarily need to be run out of town on a rail. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think you need to be banished from public life, but if your personal conduct. Is that offensive on some level? Mm-hmm. You maybe you know you've you've betrayed the voters' trust, right? Well, no, I and, do. And you're think not the that's person I voted for. 
Yeah, no, that is a parallel. And I actually, I'm like you in that. I kind of stayed in my lane on that one as a person also often thought to be on the left. And I, you know, I suppose I am. I'm not a standard bearer for the left, um, however. But like my personal politics and the place from which I write and think are, are leftist. Um, and I remember thinking, ah, it's not exactly my war. I understood the debate about Al Franken, but it was not a good faith debate, which was this idea that there are some ideals that are more important than others. And Mm -hmm. I say to people, no, that is a conservative argument. And if we're going to start making that argument, then we are conservatives. Conservatives have this idea that there is a core set of immutable values against which we should defend against all change and progress. Right. Um, The nuclear family, for example, you know, one man, one woman marriage and that these things are universal and consistent across time and all political contexts. If we want to have a set of core values like that that says it does not matter how populations have changed or demographics have changed, that this is what matters most, then really we're taking a conservative approach to progressivism. Whereas I think a progressive politics says things change and we have to and we have to change with it while holding on to the ideas that no matter what has changed, we're going to try to stand on the on the side of those who are left out. Right. That's that to me is a progressive, progressive argument. Um, And I think the parallel in this case is. There, we shouldn't accept trade-offs just because, uh, you know, the right may be disingenuous does not mean that we are supposed to make these politically expedient trade-offs. So the argument being, you know, well, you know, Northam has done good and um, maybe Justin would stand to be the first black governor of the state. And those things are more important than these sort of petty interpersonal politics. And there is no politics that isn't interpersonal. There's, and there shouldn't be, you know, we have to ask, who are we asking to give up some form of their dignity for our political expediency? And if the best we can come up with is, well, at least we aren't Donald Trump, then for me, as a, as a black woman voter, then you may as well just sit it out or you just may as well vote, you know, vote the write-in candidate from The Simpsons because then everybody truly is the same and there's no reason for us to be having these political battles. Um a progressive politics for me in this case is uh, very similar to yours in that it might sound unpopular, but I think that there is something more important than political expediency, and it should go without saying that that is one of those should be that a core voting block of the Democratic Party should not have to be forced to be represented by someone who uses their identity as a political punchline and a joke, whether they have done that before they were a candidate or after. There is value in shaming people, which is a very unpopular opinion, too, but it's a sociologically informed one. Like, we're not hanging him, right? We're not going to jail mm-hmm. you. But shame is one of the ways that we say this is what we value. and You should lose some esteem and faith from voters when you violate some of our core principles. Yeah, I, I also believe that shame is valuable uh, and guilt is valuable. They're, yeah. they're different things, yep. uh, but they both can be useful That's in political right. projects. And I want to kind of stay on this question of maybe of, of parallels here on a, for one other aspect of it, which is that when the Me Too movement in general started unfolding, mm-hmm. so I'm a survivor of sexual assault, mm-hmm. like I would say most women, right. you know, it doesn't make me special or unusual. I just talk about it. It is particular, though, right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, one conversation I had with a lot of my male friends was about how the 
shadow of sexual assault hangs over every woman every day. Mm-hmm. That the possibility that you might be a victim of some kind of sexual violence mm-hmm. helps you make your decisions from morning to night. Mm-hmm. You know, the the place you park in a parking lot, mm-hmm. where you run, how you judge the, the Uber driver, right. you know. Mm-hmm. And so I, I feel like something that my eyes were opened up to in this instance of these two high career politician Mm -hmm. officials having performed blackface was the the shadow of the robbing of dignity Mm -hmm. being just a constant presence. Mm -hmm. And and I'm sorry if that sounds naive, but it was really just dramatized for me in reading about Northam and Herring. Mm -hmm. It is. um, That's a lot of the conversation I've been having offsides with my, you know, friends and relations over the last few days is 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 exactly uh, is exactly that, which is, you know, what I think the world is seeing those who do not experience what it is like to be um, black. And then I would also point out that, you know, being a black woman means living with both of those experiences Mm -hmm. that you just pointed out. Right. This constant policing of our safety based on gender and our safety and health and well-being based on race, compounded by whether or not our class position affords us the resources to even protect or defend ourselves, right? That's quite literally the reality that we're talking about when we use big words like intersectionality, for example. Um, But we were talking about, you know, how much of our lives, especially those of us who are like upwardly mobile, right? How much of our lives are spent having to negotiate and navigate uh, those acts of sort of um, discreet interpersonal racial violence, which is what blackface is. One of the things that stood out for me is that when Northam is uh, doing his very bizarre press conference to defend oh, wow. himself, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that that thing has got to go in like a book, right? We're going to be studying yeah. that for quite—it was just fascinating. It was mm-hmm. like the white id on display. It was just— bananas. And, you know, the moment that struck me, though, is that when he's talking about, uh, you know, the time he used a little shoe polish on his face to dress up as Michael Jackson, this happened back in the 80s. And he said, uh, a reporter asked him, well, when did you recognize that that was wrong? And he said, oh, in 2000, and uh, I think he said 17. He said, yeah, (sighs) I mentioned it to one of my staffers, a black guy and a staffer, and he told me it was wrong. And I just kept thinking about that poor black guy staffer. (laughs) Who had to tell um, at that time, you know, an almost sitting governor that, yeah, maybe you dressing up in blackface wasn't a good thing. And you think about what that person had to risk to say it. You think about whether or not, you know, Northam describes the person as a friend. And I had to wonder whether or not the black guy considers himself Northam's friend. And I had this, you know, moment that I think a lot of black people had of extreme empathy and sympathy with that guy because we spend so much of our lives trying not to be that guy in those interactions because almost always the risks outweigh the rewards of speaking up. Um, Almost all the benefit is to Northam in that exchange, right? Northam Mm -hmm. gets some clarity and gets off understanding something. There's no—but all the risk was that black guy staffer's uh, risk to take. Um, And that's the kind of thing that you're navigating constantly in these sort of interpersonal interactions and the price of which we can't always uh, negotiate. And and again, this may be a very pedestrian observation, but— it was, it's so striking in seeing this uh, unfold in Virginia, which mm-hmm. is that white people, especially well-meaning, liberal, progressive white people, 
are really, really concerned with being called racist, Mm -hmm. right? It turns out (laughs) there's other things besides like being an out and out, like Donald Trump style racist Mm -hmm. that are bad. Right. And that are actually incredibly prevalent. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm sure Ralph Northam lived his life up until 2017. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, wait, up until yesterday or whatever. Yeah. Oh, he may still think today, I'm not a racist. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason he says he doesn't want to step down is he's worried he's going to be ban- branded a racist. Mm-hmm. Well, my friend. <laughs> yeah. I think the, the distinction there is a really important one, which is, It is not so much that he is worried about being branded a racist, but by whom he will be branded Uh, a racist. Yes. Right. Yeah. He doesn't want to be a racist to his white liberal elite peers because black folk had already decided. Here's the thing about living in Virginia. Black progressives in the state had had issues with Ralph Northam for, you know, since he'd been running had been make, been questioning his commitment to racial justice um, in the state, his willingness to meet with uh, grassroots community organizations that represent issues about racial uh, injustice across the state. He wasn't worried about those people feeling like he's racist, right? Mm-hmm. The fear is about being ostracized by the people whose esteem they value, which in and of itself, of course, is racist. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think something that we talk about a lot on this show is also how t- the term racist, it can be helpful, but like worrying about being branded a mm-hmm, racist mm-hmm. is not as important as thinking about systemic oppression right. and what your role in it is. And that you like, I don't think of myself as a racist. And mm-hmm. I, I think I could make an argument that I'm not a racist, mm-hmm. but am I a beneficiary of white supremacy? Mm-hmm. For sure. Right. I am. And I, I can be as well-meaning as I want, mm-hmm. <laughs> but nothing will change that. Mm-hmm. I have to actively work to, to, to balance mm-hmm. the scales. Yeah, and the that f- seems like a piece that's really missing in this conversation. Yeah. You know, I think uh, particularly white liberal progressives who really want to get it because there's now some, you know, there's some cachet in being the white person who gets it. Right. And so I think there's, you know, always this competition now and increasingly some competition to, to definitely get it. And I think one of the things that is often missing is exactly that, which is the structural piece, you know, the structural analysis. Um, and when people go, but that's just so depressing. Right? It means I can't ever work myself out of the assumptions that people hold for me. And I go, well, yeah, welcome to being non-white. Like every other group of people has dealt with that forever. <laughs> right? <laughs> to be black for me is to deal with the fact that I can be high achieving as an individual and the world can still perceive me as, you know, uh, poor or marginalized. So it's really just a welcoming to the party, a sort of sharing of the, the, the vulnerability of structure um, that we're seeing. And that feels, I think, especially violent to a lot of white people. Um, but it's the violence that other people feel all of the time. And I I am, you know, sort of a, a pragmatist in this, which is that I don't conceive of like fairness or justice or equality in terms of how well everyone is doing. I think of it as how much, how how evenly distributed is feeling bad, 
right? Mm -hmm. That to me is the sign of equality, which is we should all kind of share the burden of feeling moderately depressed about structure. (laughs) And that's probably (laughs) the best that we can do. You know, they do those studies of people in, um, in, uh, you know, uh, strong uh, uh, socialist countries like Norway and stuff often. And they talk about how depressed or unhappy the Swedes are, despite having these high rates of, uh, you know, this really strong social welfare state. And they always say it like it's a paradox. And I go, well, no, that's probably exactly what equality looks like, which is uh, we're all moderately depressed. It reminds me of actually, I mean, you should not boil things down to bumper stickers, but <laughs> one of my favorite bumper stickers of all of all time in terms of progressive politics is that if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. Right. That's and right. maybe if, it, if you're not depressed, you're not paying attention. That's it. Would also, <laughs> yeah. And you've reminded me of another quote from your book that I really appreciated, which is, if my, and I think we can actually run through kind of a real-time example of what you were talking about as far as like how white people react to your work, because I'm going to talk about how I reacted to this quote, which mm-hmm. is, if my work is about anything, is about making plain precisely how prestige, money, and power structure works in our so-called democratic institutions so that most of us will always fail. Mm-hmm. So my personal, you know, series of reactions to that quote, it, with my first one, I'm going to, oh, wow, I can't wait to ask her about how depressing that is. <laughs> And then I will say that my second thought was, or that's incredibly liberating. Thank you. So see, that's that's actually my response. I and I, I, I often worry that when I say that I am speaking from a place of. Um, you know, maybe what we might say epistemic privilege, which is that for whatever reason, the way I'm set up, that feels liberating to me. But it it really does. I mean, for me, what that means is that it is it doesn't absolve me from the responsibility of doing the best that I can, right? What it does explain are, for me are the instances where doing the best that I can won't work, right? That it means that there isn't something, you know, uh, something wrong with me that I, I haven't, that I just am not in control of the universe. And I suspect that is more or less depressing depending on what type of person you are. There are some people <laughs> for whom that lack of control is enough to send them underground, Um for me, it is extremely liberating. I mean, it, it in no way absolves me of the the moral responsibility I feel for doing my work. It just says that sometimes your work won't manifest when you can see it. Some things are going to, you know, outlive you and some things are going to come around when you least expect it. Um And for me, that frees me up from trying to keep score, right? So I don't Mm -hmm. move day by day looking for uh, evidence that what I did yesterday will matter today because I know that's just not how it works. Um, So, yeah, I find it strangely, wonderfully liberating. So, yeah, like, so I had, I got, I think what's a probably like pretty white person response that I was like, what are you saying? I'm going to fail. I'm so concerned about failure. (laughs) Um, And then I had the realization of like, well, if, if society is set up to make me fail and especially to make other people feel like they fail, mm-hmm. then maybe what's wrong here is the definition of winning and failing, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. maybe what we need to do is question whether or not those right. are the ways we want to define that. Exactly. Yeah, that's at the heart, I think, of our, our current political crises, which are these shifting definitions of winning and failing right now. Yeah. To me, it's sort of the difference between like, oh, no, you've told me that the game is rigged and I can't win versus, oh, the game is rigged. Well, we should make new rules. Right. (laughs) 
or, or <laughs> to participate in the game to the extent that you have to, right? We all have to. Right. That's that's the you know that's the great game of Monopoly that is capitalism. We all have to buy a spot on the board. We all need some place to live. We all have to do a certain amount of exchanges. But maybe, just maybe, we don't have to reproduce all of that in every part of our life. Um, and if you already know it's rigged, I think you have more um, inclination to think of it that way. That's right, to set up to the extent that you can possible in your little corner of the world, different sets of rules, which strangely enough, oddly enough, what we know about how like massive social change happens is that's how it happens, right? <laughs> it happens when people build their local sort of contacts and networks and then Somehow, the thing we don't understand is, you know, how critical mass happens, but it does eventually. And so the odd thing is, I think, by, like, not focusing on, um, you know, where we are in the great game of winning, winning and losing— in the long run, we probably win more, right? Because you mm -hmm. bring about exactly that kind of, I think, social change that many of us are desiring. And what I was just thinking about when we were talking about comparing it to the capitalist game of Monopoly is what your work kind of reveals is the power in in refusing to play Monopoly and instead mm -hmm. forming a union. Right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you can beat the game of Monopoly if you all decide to play cooperatively. That's right. Right. That's like right. If you decide to pool your money, mm -hmm. it's no longer Monopoly. That's right. So. <laughs> All right. I want to talk more specifically about your book and about mm -hmm. some other things that you have written. We're going to take a quick break. Most desk chairs we're familiar with try to lock the human body into a 90-degree angle. When it comes to healthy posture, however, there is no such thing as a perfect position. You can try and sit there like super straight and feel like you're doing the right thing, but our bodies are meant to move. You can't just do good posture. And that's why I use a standing desk every once in a while, and that's why I love Foley's line of ergonomic chairs. Our bodies were designed to move. And so while Foley's Jarvis standing desk is the best-reviewed desk in the world, that's just the foundation of a healthier way to work. Foley has standing desks, but also a collection of active chairs, which give you the freedom to move, stretch, and be healthier in more comfortable positions that work for your body's unique and changing needs as they change throughout the day. Foley's careful selection of active sitting chairs, and if you don't know what I mean, those are like the ones, that, some of them are the ball that you sit on, some of them kind of wobble back and forth, so you have to keep your core tight. Uh, there's actually a whole variety of them. Some of them are that uh, kneeling chair that Lisa Simpson uses in The Simpsons, but you should check it out. There's a whole variety of them. They will align your spine, open up your hips, engage your core, and improve your circulation. And you will feel relief immediately. And you and your body and your back will thank you. It's a smarter, healthier way to work, a more balanced human way to work. To get your body moving in your workspace, go to fully.com slash friends. That's F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash friends. Fully. Desks, chairs, and things to keep you moving. I actually really love Stitch Fix, and I've loved the service long before they were an advertiser. I, in fact, used to get it monthly, which is maybe more than someone should should buy clothes. I don't know. Like, I, I, maybe they don't want me to say that, but I used to just really love getting the packages. They were like a little extra surprise to pick me up for that month, and I, and I kept a budget. Uh, with those. And then recently I decided, you know what, rather than like do the monthly pick me up, I'm going to do every three months and just get stuff that I really, really love. And so I told my stylist that. And guess what? 
she changed it up. We went from a service that went monthly and she kind of pushed me into some trends that I might not try otherwise to a service that's really more personalized and gives me the exact thing that I want that I'm going to keep forever. So no matter what your approach to fashion, whether you're more of a fast fashion person or if you're just looking for those perfect essentials, Stitch Fix probably is for you. It is an online personal styling service that finds and delivers clothes, shoes, and accessories to fit your body, budget, and lifestyle. Just go to stitchfix.com slash friends, tell them your sizes, what styles you like, and how much you want to spend on each item. You might also tell them like I did, like what's your approach to fashion right now? You'll be paired with your very own personal stylist who will handpick items and send them right to your door. Then you try them on, pay for only what you love, return the rest. Shipping, exchanges, and returns are always free. There's no subscription required. You can sign up to receive scheduled shipments like I was doing or get your fix whenever you want. Maybe for a special occasion, like you can give yourself a birthday fix. Stitch Fix styling fee is only $20 and it's applied towards anything you keep from the shipment. Get started now at stitchfix.com friends and you'll get an extra 25% off when you keep all the items in your box. That's stitchfix.com slash friends to get started today. Stitchfix.com slash friends. Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom in a tight, 30-minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut. I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, It's everyone from comedians to politicians to, for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiance of Stefan Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim, an immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Mehdi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com slash deconstructed or on any podcast platform. So now I want to, again, sort of choose your own adventure for you. I want to talk to you about your essay about beauty, but I also mm-hmm. want to talk to you about Betsy DeVos. Oh, so okay. Wow. Which, which are your, what's your, what's your, what's your first choice? Ooh, uh, I don't know. Let's, I'm just kind of interested. Let's start with Betsy DeVos. Well, uh, Tressie, you your your latest book is Thick, which is a collection mm-hmm. of essays that's very uh, it's one of the most unusual collections of essays I've ever read. I, I mm-hmm. kind of want to talk to you, but specifically about the tone of mm-hmm. it because it's mm-hmm. it's both intimate and academic, which is I think a, an interesting trick to pull mm-hmm. off. But we're going to bookmark that okay. and instead talk about uh, the work that you do around for profit higher education, mm-hmm. uh, or as your book puts it, 
lower ed, mm-hmm. right? Are you, I, I guess I just assume that you're following what's happening mm-hmm. with Betsy DeVos in this issue. Right. Well, it's it, yeah, it's difficult for me not to, right? So I still always have yeah. a foot in uh, that work and actually just uh, finished giving a, a pair of talks about it recently. Um, yeah, so I mean— you know, Betsy DeVos ends up being a really good appointment for Donald Trump in the in the sense that she has moved the ball on conversations at the Department of Education precisely in the direction that many people wanted that department to move in, which is there's this longstanding interest among Republicans uh, in abolishing the Department of Education. Um, most of them see it as an unfortunate overregulation, overreach that came out of the civil rights movement, particularly Brown versus Board of Education, and think that it ursups uh, states' rights, right? So what I think we have with DeVos is just this wonderful case of something that Donald Trump is doing writ large, which is, you know, doing appointments, whether they be interested term, temporary ones, or permanent ones um, at agencies that have a a civil rights focus or aim, um, uh, appointing people that would gut the agency's ability to do that work. And um, one of the ways that DeVos is doing it, she's doing it in K through 12. I tend to focus on higher education. Um, And one of the things that she's done is stymied uh, students' claims uh, to being uh, their legitimate claims of being defrauded by for-profit colleges. So she has pretty much put a boondoggle in place that's made it very difficult, if not nearly impossible, for those students to have their student loan debts discharged, um, as was their right. Um, they have uh, gone out of their way to sort of gut or rewrite the intent of Title IX policies, um, which many people think are important to gender parity in higher education. Uh, she has gone out of her way to reinstitute some of the worst uh, offenders of what I would call the trifecta of for-profit college predatory um, uh, uh, predation that happened during the expansion of for-profit colleges in the early first part of the 21st century, reinstituting the accrediting agency uh, that was behind some of the most egregious actors in the for-profit college sector. I mean, so at every level, Betsy DeVos is generally choosing private sector interests and profit extraction over students um, and civil rights. And so she's just a lovely person. <laughs> you, you speak, your sarcasm is so low key. Like, I I feel like I almost want to like make sure people know <laughs> that you're being sarcastic. Yeah. And I feel like Betsy DeVos, I mean, everyone kind of knows she's terrible, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think it's sort of in the water, especially, again, well-meaning white people know she's terrible. Mm-hmm. But I, I also feel like because her terribleness does not involve literally putting children in cages. Right, yeah, yeah. That it gets a little bit glossed over, mm-hmm. even though the changes that she's making are mm-hmm. going to have ramifications yes. down the line, you know, that that will— be just, I'm, I, yeah, sure, just mm-hmm. as harmful mm-hmm. to our culture yes. as the you know family separation policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's just dismantling mm-hmm. this department from the inside. And I, I yeah. guess I was just looking at stuff that she's recently done mm-hmm. around higher education. And they're basically like undoing mm-hmm. uh, the accreditation and protections mm-hmm. that the Department of Education offers students mm-hmm. against getting scammed right. by a for-profit or nonprofit Correct. college. Like uh, they're they're loosening up who can accredit. Mm-hmm. Um, they are allowing uh, they're going to allow colleges to one hundred percent outsource courses, mm-hmm. which basically means, it, I mean, you know, I. 
took it to mean you can sell the name of the university. Right. Yeah. I mean, so what what these um, proposals are is about something that the Republican Party has had a, a um, as part of their official uh, platform for many years, it just doesn't get as much as you said. You know, it doesn't sound as razzle dazzle as some of the other Republican yeah. Party issues. To be fair, right? Yes. But yes. when they say things like you know, increase competition um, uh, in higher education um, among for private sector uh, um, operators, this is what they're saying. They want higher education to work like the private sector. So they want a couple of things. They want to break the control that faculty has over. Faculty faculty labor. I mean, fac- academic faculty, while we are not the always the best partners in uh, union labor disputes, we are one of the sort of, you know, um, uh, least assailed unionized group of workers. Even those of us who are not in a union like I am here in the state of Virginia, which does not allow public employees to be in unions, faculty has a level of governance in a university that allows us to operate very much like a union. We can act We can act collectively. So one of the ways to think about this is that this is just classic sort of union busting with or without a union. Yeah. When you say you want to outsource our courses, what they're trying to undermine is faculty power, which of course the private sector sees as uh, uh, you know, the enemy of profit and uh, quote unquote efficiency. So when you want, when you see that outsourcing, I think many times people outside of higher education, especially those who read like the big narratives from like the New York Times or whatever about, you know, swimming pools and underwater basket weaving classes and we're all going <laughs> crazy. Um, I'm not sure they recognize that most of higher education um, is comprised of working class people at this point, um, both student and faculty side. There are very few, you know, um, uh, you know, we're not wealthy, um, that we're talking about like just rank and file worker power, labor power type issues. Um, and Betsy DeVos is pushing a set of deregulation reforms that is very similar to the deregulation reforms we saw in the housing market. But because it's happening in higher education, we don't think of them as such. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's effectively what she's doing. Something that I, a pet peeve of mine is, uh, I mean, this is a conversation for another time. I'll have to have you back perhaps. But sure. when conservatives bemoan, um, you know, uh, the crisis of free speech on campus and oh, they point to like the, the sensitivity of, yeah. uh, you know, uh, ally training mm-hmm. or whatever, I want to be like, those colleges are not where 90% of people go to school. Right. Let's just start there. Yes. Like, there's a whole other conversation about whether or not that's a problem. Right. But it also is just not what higher education really looks like right. in the United States. Yep. You know, you probably know the numbers, but my understanding is that most college students in America are now considered atypical. That is Like, correct. they're not. Yeah. That is yeah, right. The not, typical college student today is. Is atypical. A, that is correct. <laughs> is a, what we would have called, quote unquote, a non-traditional student. And the language now no longer, you know, we're having uh, fits and starts because empirically it doesn't make any sense anymore. They are the statistical majority, meaning they are mm-hmm. either a parent, 24 years of age or older, no longer relying on their parents' income, um, what we would call an, in, quote, quote, independent student uh, for all kinds of reasons. They've worked, they have children, they've been in the military, um, or they don't, they just don't rely on their parents' income. They have their own house, their own, uh, they're their own head of household. So the typical college student looks nothing like the college student that you're going to read about in your major newspaper on Sunday or that you're going to see on primetime television. And that disconnect is really part of the um, problem with the discourse that we have around higher ed. 
Yeah, I also feel like there's a really good way to shorthand what's happening at the Department of Education, which I'm not going to have been the first person to say this, but basically Betsy DeVos is turning all entire university system into Trump University, right? Right. Like the, the commercialized scam mm-hmm. right. <laughs> of, right. of Trump University. And incentivizing it. I mean, there's just a there's just a deep-seated resentment among the Republican Party in general for high, of a higher education. And then yeah. Betsy DeVos, I think, even among those are is an outlier. And yeah. there's just a deep-seated resentment for um higher education. They see it as the propagators of, you know, liberal um, hotbed of activity for liberal ideas. Um, and they see it as anti-capitalism. Um, and yeah, I mean, what she is building there is in the department that is tasked with keeping higher education not-for-profit is basically doing all it can to increase competition for the not-for-profits from the private sector. I do want to turn in in this last part of our conversation away from from public life and more towards towards personal life, mm-hmm. private life, because your book of essays is so interesting to me. It's called Thick. And do you want to say why it's called Thick? Maybe yeah. I'll let you explain that. Sure. Uh, Thick is uh, the title is a play on um, many ways the um what it is like to live in various worlds where, uh, you know, a single word can have multiple meanings. Um, so for me, as a Black woman from uh, coming from a certain age group uh, in particular, thick can refer to one's physical um, uh, uh, body. Um, and in pop culture references, especially in Black pop culture references, it has a positive connotation. But then I simultaneously exist in spaces where being a thick body, meaning being larger than what is acceptable for the feminine ideal, which is based on white femininity, can be seen as having a negative connotation. But at the same time, thick has this meaning in sociology, which is me drawn on that other identity of mine as an academic, um, where thick has been used with in the idea of thick ethnography. It's a, an approach to writing about culture and writing about people. And so I use thick uh, as, as to be a sort of a synodoke for exactly what it's like to embody um, and to uh, coexist in these three different worlds through one word that can mean different things depending on the context. And what I try to do in each essay is to represent all of those modes of thickness, a thick philosophy, a thick ethnography, a thick body, a thick way of being in a thin world. I try to represent all of those simultaneously in each essay. And I I, I think you do exactly that. It's so interesting, like the, the way you weave together a very erudite kind of discussion of ideas about capitalism and culture with very personal anecdotes. Uh, and I think the essay that got to me the most, mm-hmm. and it seems like it may be the essay that has caused you the most, at least, I don't know, you, you, you tell me, but it's the essay about when you talk about calling yourself unattractive mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and what a commotion that stirred. Right, yeah. And and I I I, I know people are not going to understand, mm-hmm. so I'm going <laughs> to, yeah. because it's, it's true. You point this out, like we have such a tendency as a white woman, mm-hmm. right? I want to no 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 Tressie right. you are beautiful right. now tell me what's wrong tell me why that's not a great yeah. response <laughs> yeah so the you know 
it was it was it was fascinating to me. It actually took me quite a while to unpack that just, you know, from my own personal edification. Yeah. I'd written this essay, I mean, years ago. It was probably one of my first sort of major essays. And so I think that was now seven years ago um, about Miley Cyrus. This is when, one, people still wrote about Miley Cyrus. And then that gives you some idea of how long ago it was. And then, two, Miley was going through her sort of dangerous bad girl phase, which uh, necessitated her doing her own sort of black affect in her act, right? So, yeah, she's going to talk with, you know, a black accent, as it were. She's doing all this affectation of uh, black culture in her um, uh, acts. And I talked about what that felt like as a person who was part of what was being charactered. And I just said offhand, you know, I'm coming up, you know, and trying to locate myself, which is what we'd call it in the text, which is to give the reader some idea of who the writer is. I casually said something about being unattractive and people lost their minds on me. (laughs) And when I say people, I mean, this is what really got me. It was people from across the spectrum. Black women were mad at me. Black men were mad at me. White people were mad at me. White women were especially mad slash felt sorry for me. And I mean, I got these letters from across the spectrum, and that rarely happens. Mm -hmm. Usually when I write something, I know exactly who's going to be pissed off. And I had (laughs) missed the boat on this one entirely. And I thought, wow, wait a minute. And then I did what a person trained, like I am trained, does. I started reading things, trying to figure out, trying to get some purchase on why that would be. And strangely enough, I didn't find a good answer, right? And I read the classic feminist texts, and I knew about, um, you know— the beauty myth and, you know, its relationship to, uh, you know, maybe more so second than third wave feminism. And I knew the response to that in third wave feminism, which was to embrace multiple beauties and to embrace the body and et cetera. I knew all of that stuff and yet none of it dealt with what I thought was a taken for granted reality, which is that some of us are unattractive. And why did feminists in particularly feel so personally affronted by me embracing Mm -hmm. and owning that reality. Um, And yeah, and what I come down to is the idea that feminist theory, even Black feminists, have not dealt seriously with the idea that just like there's something structural about capitalism, just like there's something structural about racism, there's something structural about who is allowed to be beautiful. And part of how that system becomes legitimized is that it requires those of us that the system does not work for to agree that the system is what it is, right? It requires Mm -hmm. me, if I cannot be attractive, I have to at least perform wanting to be attractive. And especially, I think, for white feminists, whether whatever wave they were coming from, it felt like a personal affront because we're supposed to be able to earn our attractiveness. It's the, the, you know, Horatio Alger's myth, myth, but for beauty. (laughs) (laughs) That if you just work hard enough um, and the fact that I was evidence to the contrary, right, means that the problem resided in me and not in the idea. And one of the things that I wanted to do in that essay was to know, put the responsibility where it belonged, which is on the idea, on the ideology and not on myself and on my body. So. I think you were successful because let me, if I, again, we'll do a real time kind of how I reacted, which is that I had the white feminist response. Mm -hmm. 
First, of course, I just turned to the back cover of the book, <laughs> which happens a lot. Oh, I get people going, no, I Googled you, so I know. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> right. And I'm like, well, she's 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 fine, of course. And like that is I'm going to be honest, that's probably what, what, what was echoing in my head. Mm-hmm. I certainly my thought was like, she's not unattractive. Right. Right. And then I read you going through all those things and I kind of started to have an this essay is earlier in the book than the one where we t- you talk about your your purpose is to talk about how our institutions set us up to fail but I I feel like I had sort of a parallel realization which is that the problem here isn't her calling herself unattractive the problem here is that we we've, we've decided that that's a goal right the problem here is that we're like playing the game mhm you know to get a, to be concerned about you calling yourself that means that I've bought into a system Correct. where that's bad. Right. Instead of just like you just saying it, which, mm-hmm. it, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like like the way that we're, we feminists you know, especially try to get people to understand that to say I'm fat is not mm-hmm. a, a, a denigration. That's right. It's not pejorative. Like, shouldn't someone be able to say, you know, like I'm unattractive. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, you know, and that's just, that's yeah. it. And what people felt there, I think, is like, and mind you, I mean, I still am getting those letters. Even after people reading sort of the fuller treatment of that idea in this book, I still get letters. And um, I get them from people who know me even. I mean, they can't, I mean, people feel so personally convicted by that essay. What I really have come to understand is that what they're they're reflecting back at me is, I think, their own guilt Mm -hmm. about where they are in that process, because this is what it says. It says that j- that some part of your life, even the parts that feel really oppressive to you personally, have benefited you at someone else's expense, right? Mm-hmm. And that does feel, I think, extremely uncomfortable for people. The part where I think it starts to be refracted through, like, race and class is how comfortable people feel throwing that back at me, <laughs> Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's wow. that they it's that they won't sit with it is the that's where it becomes, I think, really fascinating for me. Because overwhelmingly it's white women going, No, I absolutely have to tell her, right? She needs to know. <laughs> <laughs> and I go, I just told you I don't need to know. <laughs> no, no, you must know. And they chase me down the virtual streets screaming, You must know, you must know. Um, my joke now is they're gonna kill me to make me beautiful. And I think that's great. Yeah, I you know I can imagine like uh, Jordan Peele needs to make that movie, mm-hmm. like a horror movie that's a, based around like that idea, right? You know, actually, I would yeah that and and actually I think Jordan could pull it off. I think he could too. My God, like I, yeah, because I'm beginning <laughs> to think that man's mind is just a wonderland, right? Like actually, yeah, yeah I think he it could certainly work for one of his new Twilight Zone episodes for sure. Yeah, well, it could be an update of that episode where the sort of the famous commentary on beauty standards, where the woman her 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 cosmetic surgery keeps failing. Oh, right. And then they they unwrap the bandages. Sorry, yeah. spoiler alert for a fifty yes. year old Twilight Zone episode. <laughs> yeah. But the and they unwrap the bandages, and it turns out she's beautiful. But mm-hmm. everyone doing the surgery, everyone else in that right. universe has, has like pig faces. That's right. Yes, I remember that. First of all, I saw it probably way too young and didn't get it at first. It was just scary. And then yeah, they show it to you in some class. You know, if you take enough yeah. classes, they show it to you. And I went, oh okay. I get, but you're right. That would actually be perfect. 
Yeah. Okay. So let's call Jordan. Yeah, you and sure. I. We should definitely get him on the line. <laughs> He's not busy. And, yeah. And we'll just like, we should do this for you. Like we're, <laughs> we have an idea. That's right. We we're should do it all you. in. Yeah. Um, so we're kind of running up against the deadline, but I just want to say again, I really appreciated all the thinking that your essays made me do. I did go through like whole series of reactions mm-hmm. to what you were writing. I would find myself like taken aback. Yeah. You know, in that same way, I think that the the essay about being unattractive is a good example mm-hmm. where I had the reaction that you described, mm-hmm. you know, and then kind of had to think about like, wait. Why am I reacting that way? That's literally, as a writer, all I can hope and ask for. Truly. I think that it's one of the most interactive books I've read in a while. <laughs> well, you know, I'm going to got to be fair. I, I had, I've had such great authors on. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm just very lucky, actually. Like, I I just, I love to talk to people about books that make me do that. So um, just thank you so much for being on the show. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I had a ball and I'm going to hold you to it. You said I can come back. I, I think you must, as a matter <laughs> of fact. Um, but yes, we, and we'll, we'll put it on the schedule. Okay. We will get it on the schedule. It's a date. I am here to remind you that it is OK to have broken a New Year's resolution and it is OK to just not think of things as resolutions, but rather intentions. and also that New Year's Day is just another day on the calendar. You can make a fresh start at any time of the year. And so I'm going to tell you about Ritual, which is a vitamin. It is the obsessively researched vitamin for women. Ritual's essentials have nutrients most of us don't get from our diets, all in the purest, cleanest forms. No shady additives or ingredients that actually do more harm to your body than good. Ritual is a way of taking care of yourself that you could have started at the new year or you could start it today. It doesn't really matter. You can just make that decision. It is a multivitamin for women reimagined. From D3 to omega-3, Ritual Essential for Women fills the gaps in a woman's diet, all with a fresh minty flavor and no fishy aftertaste. It also does not make you sick to your stomach if you take it on an empty stomach, which I think is one of the number one selling points, as well as that minty taste, which for some reason has psychologically like got me. Um, The idea of just like a, a fresh tasting vitamin. I don't know why people haven't thought of that before. Better health doesn't happen overnight, but it can start in the morning. Start with Essential for Women, a small step that helps create a healthy foundation for 2019 or just, you know, tomorrow. Visit ritual.com slash friends to start your ritual today. Again, that's ritual.com slash friends. Let me tell you about Turo. Turo is a peer-to-peer car sharing marketplace where you can book any car you want, whenever you want it, wherever you want it, from a community of local hosts. It's available in 5,500 cities across the U.S., Canada, U.K., and Germany, with over 9 million users worldwide. It is way better than a rental car. Now, why is it better? Well, you can choose the best car for you, usually at a lower cost than traditional car rental agencies, and you can customize your experience for whatever your adventure or travel demands. There are over 850 unique makes and models that are available, everything from a Tesla to a Porsche, Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Ferrari, or, you know, Toyota. That also is something that they have. Now, whether it's a truck to help you on moving day or a swishy sports car for a luxurious weekend away, or maybe a vintage van for a picture-perfect road trip, Turo lets you find the perfect vehicle for your next adventure. 
There are over 300,000 vehicles listed globally, and many hosts will deliver the car right to you. There are insurance options available for every trip, so skip the rental counter with Turo. You can download the Turo app, that's T-U-R-O, on the App Store or Google Play, or you can visit Turo.com. Listeners to this show will get $25 off their first trip when they sign up for Turo using the promo code FRIENDS at checkout. Again, you can get $25 off your first trip using the promo code FRIENDS at checkout. It's the Turo app, T-U-R-O, or Turo.com. And now, Erica Christensen. As I said, she's a patient advocate for later abortion access and co-founder of the RHA Vote Campaign, which was successful in passing expanded abortion access in New York State. You may know of Erica without actually knowing her name because she was uh, the subject of an interview in Jezebel a couple of years ago where she recounted the very difficult journey she had in obtaining a later abortion. That experience is what led her to become a patient advocate. She actually reached out to me uh, on Twitter to talk about this when I noted somewhat naively that maybe the voices that were missing from the conversation uh, that was started, well, I think actually conservative activists probably started the conversation um, about what I mistakenly called late-term abortion. You know, I felt like maybe we should hear from, from the people that had them. She reached out to me, and I definitely wanted to include her voice. It is still something I'm kind of nervous about sharing. But uh, just to spoiler alert, the insight that she brought me to, you know, my discomfort is a small price to pay for someone else's freedom. Please keep that in mind. Erica Christensen, right now. So, Erica, I want to say, first of all, thank you for coming on. Thank you Uh, for having me. Thank you for (laughs) including a patient in this conversation. We really, really appreciate it. They really should be the people we hear from the most, I I would suspect. I think in almost any other (laughs) context, the people who go through the thing we're talking about are considered the experts. You would Uh, think. So I'm I'm proud to have you on. Um, People who are interested in your specific story, we'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, You did a a long interview uh, for Jezebel a couple years ago, and then there was a follow-up story in The New Yorker uh, a couple weeks ago. But the reason you're on today is we are talking about late-term abortions again. And tell me, is that even the right term? You know it's not, and it's totally understandable that you would use it because we see it all the time. Late-term abortion, in quotes, um, is an anti-choice phrase. It is not um, used in the medical community. Uh, It was created to create fear in people. The term that is used more generally within the medical community is later abortion or abortion that happens later in pregnancy. <laughs> or maybe they're just called abortions, right? Thank you. That- <laughs> <laughs> yes. I I had this realization in watching the argument unfold uh, across, you know, media um where conservatives, you know, throwing up their hands, rending their garments, talking in this really grotesque way about the procedures. There's this weird way they seem to relish describing 
uh, thing that doesn't happen, like ripping the baby from the womb. Right. Worst nightmare scenarios. Yeah. Right. Yeah, they they really kind of get into that. Um, I, I sort of had this realization that this is a game that they're playing. Uh, what conservatives really object to is ab- abortions, period. Correct. And if we want to protect the right to access to abortion, we need to not make too much of a distinction here. No, I think you're right. I also want to be really clear. It is no surprise to us that this is their strategy for bluer states that are trying to expand and protect access. In red states, they're going full-out bans. That's what the quote-unquote heartbeat bans are. Those are just full-out bans on abortion. In bluer states that have broad support for abortion, like in New York, polling says there's 70% support for abortion access in New York State. So what do they have available to them? They can sort of exploit this very small number of patients, really um, just appeal to the absolute worst in people in their fears, and, you know, really just try to exploit it for all it's worth, right? So, you know, again, just really no surprise there. (laughs) And I I think the thing I want to have you expand upon, if you can, is something you said in the New Yorker piece, which is that I'm not sure pro-choice people who believe in limits understand the full complexity of the issue. That observation really made me sit up and take notice because I think I myself would have described myself as a person who believed in abortion, you know, with limits, Right. Sure. I mean, like, I feel like way, that's like kind of a almost, very, you could almost yeah. consider that a, a reasonable compromise. Right. Right. And, you know, we're really open about the fact that we were super ignorant before we were directly affected by this issue. I think if you would have asked me a few years ago, you know, well, are you pro-choice? Yes, of course. Well, but what do you think the limit should be? Oh, okay. Well, I guess if you're asking me for a limit, sure, people should be able to get themselves together and, you know, take <laughs> care of it and, and get their abortions by, say, 20, 24 weeks. Yeah, sure. That seems reasonable. Um, and, you know, I thought that because I was just very literally ignorant. Um, I just, you know, hadn't even really considered pregnancy. Um, I hadn't tried yet. I wasn't yet, can you know, thinking about building a family. Um, I had friends, of course, that had abortions and family members, but never later. So I just wasn't exposed to it. And I think I just fell prey to the trap. You know, it's just plays right into their hands of sort of presenting this actually, when you think it through, ludicrous idea, but presented in a way that feels like a compromise. Because at the heart of it, when someone asks you, what should be the limit? What, where, where should we draw the line? What you are asking me to do is put a line and decide when, at which point, I'm comfortable forcing someone to be pregnant against their will. That is the question. And we never Mm -hmm. ask it that way, but that is at the heart of their question. And now I would say, oh, at no point. Like, now I know too much. I've met too many patients. These aren't hypothetical, you know, monsters to me or scenarios. These are real people who we've met all over the country who have terminated later for many reasons. And I can't think of one scenario where I'm comfortable forcing them to be pregnant against their will. Not one. I think the the I would say, now knowing more, again, that one problem in the question of what do you think the limits should be is, of course, the assumption that there should be limits, that there should be some kind of outside presence that decides this for the woman. That's right. And not 
the woman and the doctor. I was thinking about this earlier, and I realized, you know, we don't think about this this way with any other procedure that doctors are involved in, right? No, we do not. Like, not in any way. <laughs> like, we don't. Doctors make life and death decisions all the time about withholding care or giving care. You know, um, about what a risky procedure versus a not as risky procedure, and we don't go in and interrogate them about, well, is this really the best way to do it? We just trust that doctors know what they're doing. That's right. And that there are laws against murder. <laughs> sure. And by the way, just I can't believe this has to be said, there still is. Yes. Uh, you know, um, this whole... <laughs> I don't mean to laugh. I shouldn't laugh. I mean... It, oh, Lord. It's yeah. It's incredibly serious, but the thing that does get lost here is that this is a medical situation like any kind of crisis medical situation is. You made a good point that I want to highlight. The uh, provider um, expansion in the Reproductive Health Act in New York uh, has been exploited a lot, and there's been a lot of uh, rhetoric around that as well. The Reproductive Health Act, first of all, when abortion law was written in New York State in 1970, there were only doctors doing abortions. The state didn't recognize other medical professionals. So now we recognize, you know, nurse practitioners, licensed midwives. We, you know, acknowledge now these medical professionals with a lot of training and ability should also be able to provide care within their scope of practice. The RHA basically took out the doctor language as to expand for providers to, again, provide this care within their licensed capabilities. And that has really been exploited. We keep hearing, oh, you know, now in New York, you can get an abortion up to the point of birth for no reason and a dentist could do it. I mean, <laughs> first off, that makes no sense. Secondly, I mean, I had a brain surgery a year before um, traveling to Colorado for an abortion, and a nurse practitioner took a tube out of my brain, okay? Mm. This woman mm. took it out of my brain. No one thought twice. I mean, you know, she was a practiced, um, educated nurse practitioner. That she couldn't also administer an abortion pill at six weeks in New York State is pure discrimination. That's it. And that's mm -hmm. what we're talking about here. Um, but again, when it's just sort of theoretical, you know, it's very easy to fill those gaps with nonsense. So let's talk about talking about this. Sure. Because I, I, I think the n number one problem in the public debate about abortion is queasiness. Yes. Is f feminists, you know, and allies' reluctance to say what needs to be said. Yes, because women are icky. Oh, so icky. Right? I mean, they just started, you know, <laughs> allowing red liquid in tampon commercials. I mean, really. People yeah, are just yeah. really scared of talking about, you know, women's bodies. And, you know, that's, I think that it's no surprise that people are, you know, uncomfortable with having this conversation. But what we're asking people to weigh their discomfort against people being denied medical care. So it's not that we don't acknowledge that it's uncomfortable. Let's have these uncomfortable conversations. Are you also comfortable with your comfort, your personal comfort, taking pre precedence over someone else receiving medical care? That's the question. Mm. An early saying of this show is discomfort is a tool of oppression. Yes, ma'am. Um, 
<laughs> it's a way that we keep people from talking about what needs to be talked about, right? That's right. And and I guess I'm I'm planning on doing a whole show around abortion uh, after uh, we take a, a hiatus this spring. Uh, so I want to kind of tell listeners, like, this is just the introduction to the topic. And I think I, I feel like I almost need to reassure people, like, I'm not asking you to go out and talk about it right away because, again— I feel a certain amount of queasiness. <laughs> but what are some, do you think, what are the first things people can do if they want to Yes, this is a very involved. good question. Yeah. We realized pretty early on exactly what you said. You know, we were going to Albany. We were telling our story. We got the feeling pretty early on that the media, legislators, everyone's really uncomfortable about talking about this. So sometimes they'll just err on the side of euphemisms or just not discussing it at all. So we created a resource. It's at talklikeapro.com. It's specifically about the Reproductive Health Act in New York, but it speaks to other states that are just trying to get their laws up to snuff with Roe v. Wade. So while it is uh, geared towards New York, it really is many universal topics and information on that site. And it has answers to tricky questions. I mean, so many of these conversations really start from gaslighting. I mean, they ask you questions and you're like, I don't even know where to begin with that because you just made so many assumptions that I can't even like sort through in my mind. So what we did at Talk Like a Pro is we presented those um, anti-talking points or pushbacks that we hear over and over again. We help you organize it. And we give you good, easy responses. We give it in 140 characters. And then if you want to learn more, you can expand and learn more about, you know, the history and more in-depth into, you know, that particular pushback. Um, another thing we've created is a letter from later abortion patients. You can find that at abortionpatients.com. These are people who have come out and signed this letter, many of them coming out for the first time to their friends and families and communities about being later abortion patients. Um, we released that yesterday. You shared it. Thank you, by the way. Appreciate that. Um, we released it yesterday knowing that we were going to be scapegoated um, in the State of the Union. So we tried to get ahead of it by writing an open letter asking people to just read patient stories. And we link to quite a few patient stories through that letter. So those are two resources I would say uh, you could start. And, you know, all of the big organizations have so much good information. Um, NARAL, Planned Parenthood, ACLU, National Institute of Reproductive Health. I mean, all of these organizations, Guttmacher, ANSEER, everyone, please get familiar with ANSEER. The Later Abortion Initiative, if you go to laterabortion.org, there's a ton of good information there. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's there. The info is there. We just have to care enough to take a minute to, as you say, sort through our discomfort and really learn what it is we're talking about here. I think to speak from my personal journey on this, I would a couple of things come to mind. Um, one is uh, if you are uncomfortable, ask yourself why you're uncomfortable, right? Which yes. you kind of got to with the, oh, because women are icky, right? Um, is your discomfort actually about patriarchy? Mm. So there's that. And then the other question I would ask is if why is it that later abortions bother you? Like if because because really what the issue is, I'm just going to say it once again, it's about abortions. It's not about later or earlier. It's about access, period. Like and if you just if you if you think you are pro-choice, then 
you're gonna ha- you, you I don't say should say have to, but like if you start putting limits on it, you're giving the other side a blank check. That's kind of where I. No, I think you're I right, fe- I and I I also think it's just another way to to sit with yourself. Is again, you know, and Liz, I'll just say I actually think it makes sense that there starts to be some discomfort for people later on in pregnancy. I mean, I think sure. first first people come at this personally, right? And they think of their own relationship to pregnancy and maybe they have children and, you know, um, people have all of this personal baggage attached to pregnancy. And, you know, we're not asking people to ignore their own personal experiences. We're asking them to consider that perhaps each pregnant person should actually be given the power to decide for themselves the value of the pregnancy that they're carrying. And just because, you know, you might have one very specific circumstance, consider that someone else's is totally different and that we actually have like no business meddling and putting any sort of judgment onto that specific person's journey in pregnancy. So, I mean, that's what I will just say. It's like, yes, it's grappling with our personal feelings, but then separately, it's also grappling with what role do we want government to have in in these discussions? I mean, because that's ultimately what is going to keep people from having rights or not. And again, I would offer asking yourself the question of like, when I say I'm pro-choice, who who am I talking about? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, am I talking about my if am I talking about myself or other people? Um, and I also think this idea that we trust doctors and medical pro- care providers to expand that because you were very correct to point out it doesn't have to be a doctor in the specific case and it doesn't have to be a doctor in other cases. We trust them to make decisions in concert with their patients about all kinds of issues, mm. right? And this is a medical issue where the decision should be made in concert with a doctor or me- other medical professional. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's absolutely right. And I think, you know, people will, I've heard this a lot, you know, people are always like, well, what do you do about, you know, this specific situation? Are we just going to let people terminate, quote unquote, perfectly healthy pregnancies, you know, whenever they want to? And it's like, okay, well, let's just like get into it. Um, Okay, well, what if the patient is 12? Okay. Mm. What if, you know, that pregnancy induced cancer? What if a million things that happen to people that we can't possibly understand because pregnancy is a hellscape and we can't possibly write laws that encompass all the complexity of pregnancy and the complications therein? I mean, it's just impossible. So, I mean, we just believe broadly and truly that whenever we put a limit on medical care, it is not going to reflect the reality of pregnancy or the reality of people's lives. I mean, and that's that's it. I mean, really at the heart of it. And, you know, I want to say, too, we've gotten to speak out about this a lot, especially in New York. We've really dedicated, you know, the last two years of our lives to fixing this law in New York. We have a specific case that is often, we do hear from people like me. And while we've gotten a good bit of hate mail, we also get a good bit of support because, you know, we do play into a, a specific narrative about later termination that is more palpable to people. You know, my husband and I are in a healthy relationship. We're middle-aged. We're middle-class. I wanted to be a mother. That's very important. We have to start extending the same compassion and consideration for people who desperately do not want to be parents and who 
feel that that pregnancy is unhealthy for many reasons. And I just want to say that. I mean, we're so lucky and privileged to be able to speak up for patients, but it is so important that we, you know, represent the people who we are least likely to hear from. Exactly. And that's another important part of this debate, which I think gets run over a lot, which is that one reason why women do uh, have to get later abortions is because they don't have access to them earlier. Correct. That's right. I mean, often <laughs> these are stories of people who tried and tried. I mean, you, you're working three jobs. You already have multiple children. By the time you scrape together the money to get your abortion, you've already crossed an imaginary line you might have not even known was there. So all of a sudden, your care doubles in cost. So now you have to start scraping the money together to meet that barrier. At that point, you've crossed another line. I mean, that's the reality. People are really facing these like incredible restrictions. And these restrictions just push the care later. If you cared about, you know, taking, you know, limiting later abortion, if that's really truly your concern, you would make earlier abortions and birth control more accessible. Yeah, I think that's the question that everyone who says that they have a special concern about later abortions uh, should answer. Like, if that is really your concern, if you if you're a pro-choice but with limits person. Well, then you should be loving our APC expansion in New York because <laughs> the reason we needed to expand the kinds of providers that could provide abortions is especially for folks in rural areas who literally don't have doctors. So they were getting pushed down the line because they couldn't access care earlier, which was pushing them later into pregnancy, which again, I'm not judging, um, but for their lives, they should be able to get a you know an abortion as soon as they need one. Um, yeah. And I know you and I agree on that, but yeah. <laughs> we do. We are we are <laughs> choir preaching right now. I think that you've spoken really eloquently about about how, how to work through some of the discomfort. And maybe that's where where we can kind of leave this, which is that I even I almost I feel uncomfortable about what I've said already, honestly. Like mm. I was already kind of marking in my head the stuff I I wanted to take out of our conversation so I wouldn't sound too extreme or make people uncomfortable. Wow. And and yeah. I'm sitting over here going, oh, God, I hope I represented all of the patients well enough. I'm just a middle-aged yeah. white lady. And, like, am I, I'm sitting here always worried, like, did I do later abortions, abortion patients? Like, did I do them justice by just reminding people that they exist, you know? And that's always my fear that we're just not representing as much as we could, Um so, well, yeah, I, I mean, think there's you did a fear great with job. this stuff, always. <laughs> there's just always concerns. Uh, also, because, you know, any nuance or any misspeaking, as we've learned recently, yeah. is just exploited and really sets the movement back so far. So it, it it does put all this extra pressure, you know, when you're allowed to talk about it out loud. And again, that is by design as well. Uh, they are trying to scare us um, out of talking about this and um, I am scared. I mean, I, you know, we're still talking yeah. about it. And I'm so glad. But yeah, there is that added pressure. You know, you just cannot misspeak on this stuff. It's just, ugh. You're just on, then you're on Fox News. They're talking about you just constantly every day. So maybe I should just say, you know, listeners, this is the raw conversation. We didn't edit anything out of this one. Um, because I, I think I'm so nervous about being considered radical. Mm. Uh where I will I will point out just I know myself well enough. Usually that's not my concern. Like usually <laughs> wow. I'm quite okay with being considered radical. <laughs> See, no, I think that's fascinating. Like <laughs> I think it's totally fascinating that like this is the 
like there's something radical about this um, for you. I think that's fascinating. And I mean, I think it's amazing that you're having this conversation and that it sounds like you're going to keep it going. Um, It might be the only way we we find our way out of this. (laughs) Well, I think I want to do this because I I suspect that I'm at least somewhat representative of a a certain segment of well-meaning white women, Mm. you know, who are are good with um, saying we're pro-choice and we are good with asking for all kinds of other social justice um, policies. But you get to this place and Mm. it gets really uncomfortable, you know? Oh, yes. (laughs) Yes. Um, And I think it just, we're like swinging right back around to patriarchy. I mean, I think, you know, there more than half of white women, I would argue, are really addicted to patriarchy. And what we're Mm -hmm. asking them to do ultimately is exchange some of their comfort for freedom. And how do you how do you talk people into doing it? You don't, you can only inspire them to. Um, so it's like, we have to allow ourselves the dignity of risk. Um, you know, you hear a lot, well, you know, people regret their, their abortion. So we shouldn't allow them to even happen. It's like, well, a, that's like not how laws work. Um, like we, you know, we don't let people, um, we don't take away people's rights because some people regret their, exercise of them. Um, but also, it's impossible to study regret in a vacuum. Um, how do you control for stigma and shame? I mean, you really can't. Mm-hmm. So I believe that, you know, women are people, pe- pregnant people are first people, and we should be allowed the dignity of risk to make our own healthcare decisions, um, no matter how we feel about them down the line. Um, in the moment with the information that we have, we should be allowed to make the medical decisions that we feel are best for us and and our families. And the first part of this episode, I talked to Tressie Cottom, and uh, she had a a wonderful piece in her book about how she hates small talk. And I said, that's a a good epigraph for this show. Hmm. I think you've, you've told me a better one, which is exchange your discomfort for someone else's freedom. And that's, that's what we're trying to do here. Yeah. That I, I, you know, wouldn't necessarily make a great T-shirt or bumper sticker, but I think the sentiment <laughs> is really what underlies, you know, at least what I, I hope, you know, to do. Um, it is a small price to pay when you think about it. Mm, I think so. That, I think, is a good place for us to end. I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you again. Thank you. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. And that is it for the show. Because I I yammered more than usual in the intros, I'll I'll keep this especially short. I will include the email address of the show in part because I know people are going to have some feelings they want to share and in part because I do want to hear from patients. Uh, We're putting together an episode that that should come out sometime in the spring. Uh, If you want to talk about your experience with later abortions, we want to hear from you. And you can write to me at withfriendslikepod at gmail.com. Again, that's withfriendslikepod at gmail.com. And I want to remind you, whatever feelings may have come up during this week's episode, they are valid. You get to have them. And whatever you do, please take care of yourself. Sofas, recliners, love seats, everything is better in leather. 
Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute, who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay. Leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.